Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary-style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is Episode 7, Tomb Raider Grid. Superstars don't get much bigger than Lara Croft. Since her introduction to the world back in 1996, she's graced dozens of magazine covers around the world, been reported on in primetime news, had multiple books written about her life, been the protagonist in two and soon to be three Hollywood movies, appeared in advertisements for soft drinks and other products, starred in hundreds of comics, and depending on how you count them, at least 21 published games. To many people, she's a hero and a feminist icon, a source of strength and confidence for the cool grace with which she exerts these very characteristics. To others, she's a sex symbol, an object of the male gaze and a soulless husk of a person. But the truth is that she's just a video game character created by animator Toby Gard while he led a small development team working on a 3D action-adventure game at the British studio Core Design in the mid-1990s. Or at least that's what she was originally. She was created to be an adventurer, an explorer, a treasure hunter, a kind of female Indiana Jones with iconic twin pistols and a French braid rather than a whip and a hat. And in a feat arguably matched by none other, She has overshadowed the best-selling blockbuster game franchise that made her such a star in the first place. The story of Lara Croft has been told over and again during the past 21 years. It's a good one, and an important one, for many reasons. But this is as much of it as I'm going to tell here, now. Instead, I want to share the story of the unsung hero of Core Design's original Tomb Raider series, the thing that made it such an important, influential, and massively successful entertainment franchise that sold more than 20 million copies across its first three entries, including something like 7 million on the first game and 8 on the second. It's easy to forget it now, as we look back on its jagged environments and unwieldy controls, But the original Tomb Raider game, released in October and November 1996 for PlayStation 1, Sega Saturn, and MS-DOS, was one of the best-looking and highest-rated games of its era. Its design lacked the whimsical near-perfection of Super Mario 64, which was released about six months prior. But it made up for this with atmosphere and mood that was second to none and an alluring world that demanded a kind of patient precision. Tomb Raider, much like Jordan Mechner's brilliant 2D platformer Prince of Persia had done several years earlier, tied its mechanics, its rules by which players could navigate the world, to its detailed animation. Lara Croft moved predictably and consistently. Controlling her at times felt like moving a remarkably agile tank, But that was a small price to pay for the intricate environmental puzzles that this enabled. There were multi-jump maneuvers and desperate leaps across chasms, dives between poisoned darts or spike traps, backflips up to secret areas, and much, much more. 
And if you talk to fans of the original games or to one of the developers who worked on them, they'll tell you that the secret to Tomb Raider's brilliance was not its buxom star or its sultry marketing. Although they certainly had a big contribution to its ultimate success. But rather the secret was its level design and the atmosphere that is level design, music and art created. And all of these things might have been totally different if not for one simple decision during development. One pragmatic choice to lay the levels out on a grid of square blocks. Everything comes back to that. The majority of the puzzles and certainly all of the platforming owe their existence to that decision. The same goes for the slight fog that diminishes distant objects into a white haze and the cavernous chambers and ruins and outdoor areas that provide a sense of isolation, of solitude and discovery. As do Lara's almost iconic movements, her backflips and sideways somersaults, her swan dives and 180-degree forward rolls, these were all defined by the grid. The grid meant that players would always know that if they jumped forwards, backwards or sideways, From a standing start, they would finish exactly one block away. Likewise, three steps forward or backward were equal to the length of one block, as was hopping backwards, while a running jump took three steps to prepare and travelled a distance of two blocks forward. And you knew that you could execute a running jump without fail by walking to the edge of a block, hopping back, running and jumping. And when you coupled all these abilities with a grapple button that allowed Lara to try to catch a ledge while airborne, plus a few environmental elements like movable blocks she could push or pull and steep inclines that she would slide down, when you coupled all of these together, you had all the tools needed to devise some masterful environment puzzles. Tomb Raider's grid was game-changing. It defined and confined the problem space for both players and developers in such a way that it became liberating. And as I alluded to before, it was only there because of one seemingly insignificant decision made in the interests of pragmatism and not art or idealism. This is the story of how that came to be and how it made Tomb Raider, well, Tomb Raider. Let's begin in early 1995, when the Tomb Raider project was still in its earlier stages, and had only just begun to emerge from its ideation phase to actual development. I was at the end of one project, Skeleton Crew, um, working with a small team on there, and at the end of everybody's game, we kind of left in limbo a little bit with not much to do. And Toby Gard had just finished his game. He had been working on BC Racers and hadn't got a project lined up. So you're in this almost this experimental staging call of a few months of talking to other people, seeing what ideas they've got, and see if a, a team sometimes naturally forms. This is Heather Stevens, one of the original Tomb Raider's two artists and level designers. She'd been at Core less than a year at that point, having previously spent five or six years as an artist with fellow East Midland studio Rare. And that's what happened, really. He hadn't got anything to, to start, I hadn't, and we kind of ended up in the same room, knocking ideas together. To be honest, I don't know if Jeremy really knew what to do with me and Toby. We were both kind of, probably one of the shortest terms there as far as how long we'd been at call. And um, 
Toby as I say he just finished his game and I just had somebody come into the room and say do you want to nip up to Toby's room and work for a couple of weeks see what he's doing. Heather became team member three after programmer Paul Douglas and of course animator and designer Toby Gard the visionary pushing the Tomb Raider project. I'd seen some of his early stuff when he first came to call. He applied with a, a really good demo disc as part of his CD, and but that was more of a top-down Indiana Jones-style Prince of Persia platformer, and I thought that was incredible anyway because it really was a um, you know a, a, a work-at-home project. He'd obviously done it in his own bedroom or something just before he'd come to call, and he put that on hold to do BC races. Toby had just mocked up an Egyptian tomb in 3D computer graphics program 3D Studio, which is a precursor to the popular industry tool 3DS Max. It was to serve as a starting point as they began to turn his vision into reality. It didn't take him long to do it, a week or so. And I just thought, crikey, if you could put something like this into a game, it would be phenomenal. But that, that really was just the beginning of it. Heather set to work trying to build Toby's concept into a level. But 3D Studio was poorly equipped for the task on the computers of the era. And at that point, of course, we're talking about pre the arrival of graphics accelerators on the PC. So it was literally, you know, your computer's CPU attempting to draw what it could on screen, which meant that all the preview stuff was entirely wireframe. Okay, so when the artists were trying to model stuff, they were literally just looking at a wireframe of their character or whatever. This is Gavin Rummery, a programmer who joined CORE straight out of university soon after development kicked off on Tomb Raider, and chose to work with Toby's team rather than another project called Swagman, after being sold on Toby's enthusiasm and the fact that it was 3D. Gavin was asked to do the code for the environments and the bad guy behaviours and any other bits and bobs that the main character would encounter, while Paul would code the animation systems. Gavin quickly determined that 3D Studio wasn't cutting it as a level design tool. If they wanted to see what it might look like when it was rendered out, they had to hit the render button and sit there. And it was like watching a you know, 56K modem download something, you know, gradually the picture would appear on their monitor very slowly, line by line, as the steam-powered computer back then would render out each line of the image. Of course, it was designed for doing stills and things like that, and FMVs. It wasn't actually designed for doing uh, in-game stuff. But it, what it meant was that Heather was attempting to build the levels using that piece of software. And so she was sat there with a, this just... Uh, she was kind of building a kind of an Egyptian environment, but it was just... You just looked at a screen and it just looked like, I don't know, something out of Tron or something, you know, just all these lines all over the place. And when she was trying to show me what it was doing, she was sort of trying to zoom in on an area to go, well, we're in the room. And she was like, ah, well, I think we're inside the room. Actually, I'm not actually sure anymore. I'm having real trouble with this because I can never work out until I hit the render button whether I'm building things that are kind of overlapping with other things around. So it was just like a complete nightmare. It was going to take her forever. She'd been working on this thing quite a while as it was. It didn't look really like a a level as such, it was more of a kind of, would have worked maybe as a asset in a FMV or something. And I honestly, especially given the computing power we had back then, was just looking at it going, well, I, I have no idea how we're we going to get this working. And, you know, Paul was the same, you know, the pair of us just couldn't really see how on earth we were going to get a character to interact with 
something built out of just completely arbitrary geometry. Worse, Gavin couldn't see how Heather would even build the levels, let alone how they'd go about making them interactive. At that point, I was still at a very sceptical stage of, you know, I hadn't been in this company long and I'd had Toby kind of hit me with this impossibly ambitious sounding game. And then I was looking at stuff like this and being told, well, you've got to try and sort this out, mate. It's like, Christ, you know, this isn't going to happen, you know. But I can't remember how long after. It wasn't long after. I did have a bit of a fiddle around trying to get, you know, I think Heather built me something really simple, like just a tiny bit of a room or a staircase or something. I was trying to do the maths around colliding with that. And I was just thinking, well, it's going to be a nightmare. And then I had this idea. I can't remember when exactly that happened. It was only a few weeks after I'd been there that I played Old from Underworld, which I don't know if you remember it at all or I've ever played it. But it kind of predated Doom, and it was one of the first 3D games I'd ever seen on a PC that actually had texture maps on the walls. So that means it had walls that might look like cut rock or stone, or that were buttressed by timber pieces, or they'd been drawn to look like light is bouncing off them in a certain way. Basically, it just means that the world was not composed of a handful of flat, solid, unchanging colours receding into the distance which is how 3D games looked before that. So at the time, it was very groundbreaking, although if you see it now, if you look at a screenshot, it's got a tiny little 3D window in the middle of the screen surrounded by a UI. But it was basically, it was built on a grid. It was clear, and you didn't feel like it was a grid, you felt, because the draw distance was about two metres in front of your face for a start. You know, you're wandering around in a cave, and it seemed kind of cool at the time. It would take me a while to realise, oh, hang on, it's... uh, all just built on a grid you know it doesn't feel like that so I mentioned that to Toby and he was like well actually he loved that game as well so the pair of us both liked it so then all of us as a team just got talking about it like wow if we did do a build on a grid this would make be easier that would be made easier you know it was basically Toby was like oh yeah I could define all Lara's moves in terms of how far she ran and jumped and how far she grabbed and Heather was, could totally see that she could build the levels more easily. Paul was like, oh yeah, I can do the collision much more easily if we just got simple, you know, grid of numbers for the heights of all the floor spaces. So it kind of all just clicked as, hang on, this this is a good idea. This will make it much more tractable as a problem. And so I started building an editor that became the room editor. This is the moment, perhaps more than any other, that defined what Tomb Raider would become. It meant the game would have a fully realised 3D world, but also a clear and consistent internal logic. Switching to a grid-based system with a purpose-built room editor would have huge ramifications for the game's development, whereas with 3D Studio they'd been left either guessing how a wireframe composition would look once fully rendered, or twiddling their thumbs and waiting for it to render so they could then check it out. With this new editor, they could rapidly prototype their ideas. And you clicked on the floor space, you know, you started off with a, a, a room of whatever dimensions you decided, and then you clicked on the floor spaces, move them up and down, and the same with the ceiling, to build the environment, or you could turn them into walls, and that made it very, very, very quick, relatively speaking, for the artist to quickly knock together a room, hit the button to export it, into the game engine, 
run around, see if Lara could reach that jump or do whatever. And if it didn't, five seconds later, they were back in the editor making the adjustment. And that, it was, that took me, I don't know, a good four or five, six months, I think, just working on that. Just That was my first thing I was really working on on Tomb Raider. Paul was busy building the animation editor, the kind of sister editor that went with it. It was getting Lara kind of all her moves linked together. So the two things kind of got built in parallel. But yeah, it was, it was a big jump forward for me. That's when it started to feel like, oh yeah, we can do this. We can actually do this. Because, you know, suddenly we had Lara moving around initially on a flat surface, then on small, more bumpy surfaces and so on. And then gradually her getting her moves to navigate this environment. And of course, it dictated to a certain extent what moves she got given. It was like, oh, it'd be cool if you could do this, if you could jump there, if you could do that. Okay, let's put in another one. It made a huge and immediate difference for Heather and her fellow artist and level designer Neil Boyd, even when Gavin had barely gotten the editor working. Earliest experience was Gav literally just giving us this, forwarding us this little package that we opened up. And because we discussed how it was going to work beforehand, what we wanted it to do. Um, simple clicks, ups and downs, being able to select grid pattern areas and be able to manipulate them with the click of a mouse. I kind of had a good idea of what we were going to get, but actually having it, I mean, it's like any tool. If somebody gives you a tool that can do a job 10 times faster than anything else and allows you to push any of your ideas as far as you can, you're just wowed by it. And I just remember that. I just remember, I was just like excited. It was Christmas morning for me. It was like a gift a present. I was like, oh my God, this is fantastic. I love it. I can build things straight away. I haven't got to wait two hours to render a scene. And that's what life was like in Max and Maya back then. You know, you went away and you had a cup of tea. I could do it at the click of a mouse. It was phenomenal. Just build a room up, put a door in, make a set of staircases, throw a few pillars in, you know, have a very basic texturing tool that allowed me just to select a texture that I'd literally just created, tiled, put it into my room editor and then start applying it to the walls. I mean, it was just amazing, an amazing machine to use. When you look at what was available at the time, it, it was incredible. It barely took any time at all for Heather, Neil and Toby, all excited at the power and flexibility of Gavin's level editor, to push the game's level design in an unexpected direction. One thing that made it a little, I don't know whether it would have changed the way I approached it, when I started building it, we were very much talking it was Tomb Raider with tombs, you know, like Tomb Mark Khan Moon's Tomb, which is just a bunch of linked rooms and that kind of thing. That was what was in my head and what we were discussing and talking about at the time. It was, you know, the early level designs were very much like that as well. So that's what it was planned to be, that you'd have rooms with doorways to corridors to other rooms, you know, much more like a dungeon or something. But the moment pretty much immediately I got it to a point where the level Heather and Neil could play with it. They pretty much took it away from me and went, oh, well, hang on, look, if I make the entire wall between two rooms a doorway, that gives me a room twice as big as I just had. You can imagine it's a bit like knocking through in a house, knocking through down one of the walls between two rooms. You've got a big room. That's what they started doing. They immediately... I want to quickly pause the story here to take a moment to ask that if you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing it on social media and reviewing it on iTunes, as both of these things can make a huge difference in attracting new listeners. 
And if you can spare a few bucks, I'd appreciate it if you could make a one-off donation via paypal.me slash mossrc or a monthly donation on Patreon, lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon, where you'll also get access to some bonus stuff. I'll remind you again later, but for now, on with the show. You know, more or less immediately, they slapped together. I think Toby had slapped together about eight rooms in a kind of box and started building a pyramid. And it was like, me and Paul were like, no, 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 no. That's, you know, we were trying to keep the draw distance down. We were, you know, we wanted to, you were only supposed to be in little tiny rooms with a, a small doorway that led into the next room, not be able to see gigantic spaces. But that's the way it went. It very, very, more or less immediately went that way. So that really changed, I think, to an extent, the direction that the game went because the environment suddenly got very big and expansive and much more intricate than, you know, we originally thought we were going to be doing, which meant that Lara became more athletic and able to do you know, when Toby had first done his little things, she was just climbing up ledges, you know, she wasn't leaping and jumping across great big vast spaces trying to navigate them. So that radically changed, I think, where how the game developed. But it did start feeling cool. Yeah, Paul Gav. We were always doing tricks. We were always doing tricks with that room editor. Everything was in some way there were an illusion from a lot of boxes all spat around each other. Every time we did something, he would he'd just have that look on his face of that's not what he was meant to do, but you've done it now. So, you know, I mean, it's like things like it wasn't designed to create skies, but eventually we ended up putting black textures all over the roofs or blue textures all over the roofs of rooms to give the illusion of skies in some places. It did and it didn't work. Got an idea of a sky. I think the thing that was the biggest nightmare in the editor actually was the what we ended up calling the flip maps, which was this thing where entire rooms could be swapped for an alternative version of the room which was used quite a lot in the levels for I don't know trying to think of a particular oh well, in fact the classic one was the uh, the system level with the water going up and down so the room exists in two states one where the water's at one level and one where it's at the higher state and what happened was we had this kind of complicated set of triggers on the floor that as Laura ran across them were swapping which mesh was being used for a room and the level designers had to set that up in such a way that obviously you didn't see it happen in front of your eyes because most of the time that wasn't going to look right so that's why all that stuff tends to happen off camera you hear a crash or you hear the water rising and then you come back and it's changed level because we weren't animating it we were literally swapping for an alternative version of the room that was in the different state Heather and Neil were able to rapidly test and iterate on their ideas, which meant that they leaned towards an experimental approach to the design. Because whatever you drew on paper uh, was really just a guide. Uh, and we could go away with some very simple map designs on paper because it was so easy to actually build it in the editor, even if it was just a basic set of rooms. So you, so you didn't spend too long on your, your let's say, you didn't do any intricate map designs. It just wasn't worth doing that any other way than throwing it into the editor straight away. And we'd have to have team meetings about the, the rough idea of what, what a level should look like, what you were actually going to do in the level, collect some keys, you know. Or, but then it was kind of up to, up to the artists themselves to create the rooms, the environment themselves. You just did your research for that, tried to get something similar to the idea that you'd got in your head, and, ex- and accept that it wasn't, wasn't going to be perfect, but it just needed to feel right. You just needed to give that player a sense of being in that location. Part of that meant also that you could explore off the beaten track. 
If a player decided that they wanted to see if they could get up onto the roof of a building or get into some interesting nook or cranny off in the distance, just out of curiosity, then they might spend the next half hour exploring the area in search of a route there. Now, in most games, that search would be ultimately fruitless. There'd be no way there without either cheating or exploiting some kind of glitch in the game's code. But the Tomb Raider team tried to let this same curiosity rule their choices too. Like, you know, there was that temple thing built in the Lost Valley where the dinosaur was. You weren't originally supposed to be able to get on top of it, but it's something like, oh, it'd be cool if you could get up there and find a secret, or it could be cool if you can get up onto that broken bridge that's over the valley. And so suddenly, a couple of clicks here and there at the edge of the rock faces, and suddenly Lara was able to navigate away if you were willing to try and, as a player, work it out. And with the way that Lara's movement capabilities were so tightly interwoven with the grid-based level design, Cool and exciting new ways to navigate an environment would just emerge naturally from the geometry. Um, so, for instance, with the Greek level that I did in Tomb Raider 1, I just thought it would be interesting if all of these rooms were centred around a, a almost a central shaft in the level. So what I created was a really long, deep room, and off that long, deep room, the four doors to each one of the challenges was available to you. And by doing that, you've automatically given Lara this tower area to explore up and down the centre of this shaft that you've created. That then turned out to be a perfect place to test a player's skill with lining up and executing running jumps and catching ledges, a technique they'd need to get the hang of in these earlier stages before it gets really tough later on. And Heather had the good fortune too that she could be sure that a player would be able to handle this challenge because she herself was learning the controls as she went through and designed the levels. Because we moved to it too, we'd only just got a, a system where we could start exploring our rooms. So we were like novice Tomb Raider players at that stage. So for instance, if I wanted to drop and catch a ledge by, by level three, if I couldn't do it by level three as the build that, there wasn't going to be much chance of the player actually doing it. Similarly, as development progressed, they learned more about the most interesting ways that Lara could interact with this grid-based environment and began to think of more intricate puzzles involving sliding jumps and timers and the full extent of Lara's acrobatic abilities. And still, always, you could identify your possible routes through a level, not by finding the shiny surfaces or following the on-screen prompts pointing you there, as has become the norm in today's 3D action-adventure games, but rather by understanding that relationship between Lara's capabilities and the geometry of the world. You've already made a calculated choice before you've made the jump, which is something you don't even think about if you get better with controls. You can visualise things straight away, you can look around that level and go, oh yeah, yeah I can see, I can, if I jump off that bit there, I can reach that ledge. I'm not going to be able to reach it from over here, but I think I could get it from over there. Um, and that's, that, that's the joy of exploring a level to me. It's not just having it laid out in front of you. Which is exactly what tends to happen nowadays, even in the latest Tomb Raider games, which follow the conventions set by the Uncharted series in making Lara's jumps cover an inconsistent distance, so you never know exactly how far she can actually jump. And sometimes it seems like she's jumping an impossibly long distance. 
But there are reasons for this difference, and we'll go into those next time, in part two of this deep dive into the Tomb Raider grid, which will further examine how the core design entries were made, as well as how Tomb Raider's design has impacted on games both in the Tomb Raider series and more broadly across the industry. And it will look at the grid system's surprising legacy. The Life and Times of Video Games is written, edited, and produced entirely by me. With additional music this week drawn from Nathan McCree's soundtrack for the original Tomb Raider game. Nathan has an album coming out soon called The Tomb Raider Suite that contains fully orchestrated renditions from the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra of reworked material from the first three Tomb Raider games, which are the three that he composed, recorded at Abbey Road Studios. I'll have a link to learn more about that in the show notes. The original Tomb Raider game is available digitally on PC, Mac, PlayStation 3 and Vita, and on mobile. If you buy the HD iOS version via lifeandtimes.games slash tr1 hyphen iOS, all lowercase with the number one, that's lifeandtimes.games slash tr1 dash iOS, then I'll get a small cut of the sale price. It's probably the best way to play it if, and only if, you have a controller that you can use. If you enjoyed the show, please tell other people about it. It'll also be a huge help if you leave a rating and review on iTunes, which will help push up the podcast's ranking, and you share this episode on social media, which just helps us draw more listeners. The Life and Times of Video Games is on Twitter and also Instagram at Life and Times VG. And I am on Twitter at MossRC. If you can afford to make a monthly donation to help me get the show to a point of long-term sustainability, head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. As thanks, you'll get a bunch of bonus content and you can even get a chance to pick a topic and boss me around on a future episode. I also now accept one-off donations via PayPal. If you've got a few bucks lying around and want to sound your appreciation, you can send a payment via paypal.me slash mossrc. I'll be back soon with the Tomb Raider Grid Part 2, and maybe sooner with some small bonus thing. Until then, I hope you have a great holiday break. My name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening. See ya.